so a friend of mine recently had a miscarriage and it was a horrible traumatic event for her. I won't go into the details of the circumstances, but uh, Rebecca, your your dog knows that I'm. I know she feels your sadness and she wants to be with you. She, you shouldn't talk about this alone, because people are isolated in this experience. One in three pregnancies ends. Right when. Ever I start talking about something, something distressing and your dog is nearby, Rebecca, your dog instantly puts her little paws on my <laughs> chair and has that, has that look in her eyes that says, you look like you're suffering. May I comfort you by sitting in your lap? And, and just by holding an animal, your blood pressure goes down. So oh, yeah. she's hard at work. Oh, yeah. So my the friend of mine went through this and the again the the loss is a loss in and of itself but the again I won't go into gory details but they were gory in terms of the manner in which the miscarriage happened in the moment and it was a mixture of feelings for her it was tremendously sad it was tremendously uh, traumatic in terms of just witnessing death, essentially. It was... Well, and also hormonally, her body is preparing. Her body is pregnant. Yeah. And so they are then coursing through her all of these chemicals that aren't ordinarily present in a woman's body. Yeah. And she is no longer pregnant. Present, pregnant. Yeah. And so... It is it is wrenching on it on the body. The whole pregnancy process is wrenching on a body, but yeah. the termination of it is equally intense. Right? Yeah, it's a physical, painful, scary experience. It's also she experienced a lot of love and compassion for her miscarried fetus. She felt a connection with the unborn or you know, dying or dead child. Just trigger warning people. I'm going to be talking quite explicitly, as you can tell about this. I don't like to mince words when it comes to this sort of thing. I don't like to use silly, uh, oblique words like, um, you know, the baby left us. <laughs> the baby didn't leave us. The baby died. It was, and it was a fetus and it was real. And it's horrible and it's sad and it's traumatic and it's terrible but I believe that if we don't talk about it, we're basically denying it's, it's re- the reality of it. And, and for some people, it defines their life. If they are unable to get pregnant again, they will always identify. And even if they have another child, which is often referred to as a rainbow child, the child that comes after a pregnancy loss, hmm. They will remember that child that was passed. I mean, even on the genogram, there is a symbol for a lost pregnancy. Yeah. Right. We have in our field what we call genograms, which are basically family trees that obtain that contain also clinical and relational information. And on that, we have a symbol for, for miscarriages and stillbirth, stillbirths and this sort of thing. So this is what I want to talk about today because I think it's important and it's rarely talked about, but 
it is a, a it would be important to talk about anyway, but it's even more important because it's such a common experience for people in every community around the world. And it's just bizarre the way people feel like they can't talk about it. For instance, if your spouse died, you could have that define your identity for the rest of your life. You're a widow. You're a widower. People console you. They understand if you miss work. If you have a miscarriage, there's, there's nothing for people. There's no label. There's no ceremony. There's, no, there's nothing. And it's terrible. Anyway, so that's why I want to talk about today. I'm, I'm a little angry about it, as you can tell. Mochi's here, though. Mochi's here for me. Mochi's the dog, in case you're, you're wondering. It's not like I'm just sitting here with some mochi. Um, <laughs> Ice cream also helps that's right. in these times of stress. Yeah, I might eat your dog if I get really upset. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle. And I'm also a licensed therapist. Uh, hi, I'm Rebecca Bloom. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and a board-certified art therapist working mostly with adults in a private practice in Pioneer Square. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, so if you're listening to, the, listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That is patreon.com and go there to become a patron of the podcast. And also remember that a percentage of your monthly pledge goes toward various charities that we support, including the Plymouth Housing Group, which is a housing group in Seattle that helps to house the homeless in a very integrated way, in a comprehensive way that actually helps them to rebuild their life. And also the Trevor Project, which helps LGBTQ youth. Welcome to the Patron Zone, people. Thanks for becoming a patron. We love you very, very much. Okay, so let's get into this. So I'm going to talk about a, a couple terms here. One in the research literature, in the clinical literature, we call these sorts of deaths perinatal deaths, which encourage, which in, include miscarriages, stillbirths, and newborn deaths. Mm-hmm. They tend to lump these together because they tend to have similar elements to it. Also, I'll be referring to disenfranchised grief, which was coined by Kenneth Doka in 1989, who was a professor of gerontology and a prolific writer on grief. He first introduced the term disenfranchised grief as a term for grief that is not acknowledged or validated or supported by a particular society. So our society will not acknowledge or validate or support particular kinds of grief, and we call that disenfranchised grief. I'm writing a book about about grief, and I'm spending a tremendous amount of t- time and uh, words in the book to disenfranchise grief. As I started looking into it and really thinking about it, I realized that 99.9% of grief is disenfranchised grief. There's almost no grief or loss that is truly acknowledged and validated and supported in, in our American society. I might even say 100%. I can't think of any loss that is validated or acknowledged sufficiently in our society. But there are some that are particularly disenfranchised, shall we say, and one of those is perinatal deaths. Do you agree? Yeah. I. As you're talking, I'm really thinking about 
I don't know if you know this, but at Seattle Children's Hospital, there is a photographer who volunteers their time and takes photos, beautiful black and white photos of stillborn children um, so that the parents will have a memory. So this, there are so few ways for the, p- these parents to document what's happened in their lives. Yeah. I want to actually go into, this is something I was going to read later. This is a, an excerpt from my rough draft of the book and it has to do with taking pictures of, of stillbirths or um, children who died before birth. So this, I'm just going to read it. A friend of mine once showed me a picture of her friend holding her stillbirth baby. Directly after birthing the deceased child, the mother requested she be able to hold the child, and she asked someone to take a picture of them together. Later, she sent the picture to a few select friends and relatives, presumably as a way of sharing her experience of the loss. My friend said she thought the picture was appalling, gruesome, and evidence of psychopathology. At the time, I did not know what to think and chose to mirror my friend's judgment of the mother. Upon writing this book, I now have a new perspective. The loss of a child might be one of the most, if not the most, difficult experience that anyone can endure. Good parents are fundamentally protective of their children, and the vast majority of them would sacrifice their lives for their children. And when a child dies, the parent's core purpose in life has been wounded, Therefore, grief reactions are bound to be varied and severe, such as sharing a picture of the mother holding the stillborn, the stillborn, birth, the stillborn child. Any thoughts on that? This stuff is really hard for people to handle. I think this, the depth of the grief is um, it's kind of unfathomable if you haven't been through it. But I have so many clients who continue to refer to miscarriages in the context of their lives as one of their great losses. Right. Um, and it's common for certain women, they have several. So it becomes, you know, this compounded, difficult experience. Right. And I, the feeling that you're not a good enough person to hold a child is something that is often reported to me. I'm a man, so I've obviously I've never had a miscarriage, but having heard it enough from clients and friends and and other people, they will often say they'll, and if they're, I don't know, they'll, they'll often say apologetically, they'll say, I know this is kind of crazy, but there's a part of me that thinks there's something wrong with me that I can't hold on to a child, that I'm not a good enough mother. Right. Which is, are you watching Downton Abbey right now? No, I, the first season, can we talk about this just to lighten this up a little bit? The first season I loved. The first season of Downton Abbey, I was I was into it, man. I the style, the story it was subtle, and the times were different. And the the servants downstairs, mm-hmm. and the the rich people upstairs, and the the way it just was very compelling. The second season quickly became a soap opera in a bad way. In that everyone was sort of there was that evil. Um, servant girl downstairs that was betraying everyone or conniving or working it, you know? So, but do you remember she pushes the pregnant, uh, mother of the whole clan and causes her to miscarry? Really? Yes. Oh my gosh. And then the, 
sorry if you've never watched the series, multiple I won't. spoilers. I won't. <laughs> so then the youngest daughter dies in childbirth. Oh. And then this season, there's a, one of the servants has had a series of miscarriages, Lady Mary's personal servant. And there's this fascinating scene where Lady Mary takes the woman to her gynecologist in London and he offers to perform a procedure for her. And he says, you know, this procedure has been available for the last 20 years and it'll help you carry your next baby to term. Um, what, but what's the procedure? It's sewing the cervix shut, basically. That's what I thought it would be because I'm thinking back then things are pretty crude, so it couldn't possibly be just sewing the cervix shut. That can't work, can it? So, but here we are, a story about, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, and pregnancy loss is featured in almost every season. Like, that's how common it is in life. Right. It has been estimated, according to research, that 50% of all women have experienced a miscarriage at some point in their life. 50%. Right. Often, sometimes, they don't. People, women don't even know they're pregnant. Right. But often they do. And it's a, an extremely common experience for people. Why aren't we talking about it more? Well, I believe, fundamentally, in our culture, we have this message that it, since you never saw the baby physically or the baby never was in the world that you didn't have a connection with the child that you, you have no connection with a child until birth. That's, that's this, this very clean, uh, convenient notion going through our society as a way of denying uh, the reality of the situation. That is as soon as someone learns they're pregnant, they're connecting with that child. The, well, and the, the hopes and the fantasies, right. Of what they will be like as a parent. Exactly. So I wonder if we as a society would react differently to miscarriages if we had a different term for them, such as death of an unborn child or something along those lines. Because the word miscarriage is such a such an oblique uh, euphemism right. to the experience of the death of an unborn child. Well, it makes me think of how often pretty much Everything that has to do with women's health is kind of skirted over and mislabeled and not given yeah. the attention right. that like, it's due. Are, are you having your period? Uh, no, I'm bleeding out of my vagina. Uh, I am sloughing. Well, actually, the, right. My, the lining of my uterus is sloughing. Right. How are you doing today? Isn't it weird how we have no other usage of the word sloughing except for your uterus? It's, we never say, I... That's I, not true. People say they sloughed skin. Who says that? I've never... Heard. Or I sloughed the inside of my, my trash compactor or my, my garbage... What do they call the thing in the sink? The trash or the garbage disposal. Garbage disposal. Sometimes I'll slough the inside because it gets this sort of film on the inside. I never say I sloughed that. I just say I cleaned it. Um, so anyway, uh, again, just trying to make it light. <laughs> so uh, there is no tissue present here, but there there should be. I mean, I told Kirk that I was afraid. Every time I thought about this subject, I th- started to tear up. That this is, for everyone I know who's been through it, it is so devastating. Uh, and that it becomes a really private 
experience between that woman and if she has a partner. Um, you know, there's such a taboo in our culture about talking about pregnancy. If you know, don't say anything in the first three months. You hear this happen so often that someone's pregnant for the first time and they tell everybody, and then often they miscarry and then they have to tell everybody that news. Right. Right. Or they don't tell anyone because they're in the first trimester. Uh And it's this secret joy that a couple experiences. And then they have a miscarriage. And then they, what do they, do they tell people I was pregnant? Often couples won't. They'll Mm -hmm. just, they'll just, they'll just have a private grief to themselves and won't feel the, that they will get the support that they deserve. Um, or if they tell other people, the other people will, they, the other, the friends and family haven't really connected to the unburned child because they didn't even know it existed yet and therefore don't treat it in with the weight it deserves. Uh, often in my experience, Oh, it's a miscarriage. Oh, or what a lot of times there's a lot of really stupid things that people can say like, and again, they're, they're well-intentioned, but because our society is so ridiculous that we just don't, teach people proper protocols around this sort of thing. And so what people will say is one, they'll either avoid it altogether and say, Oh, okay, well, there you go. What's so have you, where are you watching the Super Bowl this weekend? So uh, things like, well, you know, just keep trying. Mm-hmm. You, you, you can try again. You know, if your if your spouse died, you would say, well, you know, there's other fish in the sea. There's other, there's other men out there that you can date. No big deal. There's plenty of men in the world. Why are you crying? I mean, you wouldn't say that, right? You'd say, holy crap, you, you lost your unborn child. How terrible. Period. That's just an awful thing. Mochi's freaking out again. Yeah, I think it is. I think when people get nervous, they don't know what to say. Uh, and then also, it's so hard just to listen and not give advice and let someone... Just have a moment to tell their story. You know, how how far along were you? How did, you know, what were your first signs that was happening? You know, right. I mean, just give someone space to tell their story. Yes, that that is the primary thing that I find to be helpful for me when I am grieving. And the primary thing that I try to provide other people is attention and space to, to explore with me being there with them. Mm-hmm. It, it's... It's a it's a lot to ask of Americans because we're not taught to do this at all in any we situation. We don't deal with grief at all right. in this culture. Right. We have I mean it's interesting now like you know we give people what you're allowed to grieve for about a week and then get it back get it together and get back to work. Would you like if, we need you here. If that. If 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 that. Yeah. It, so uh, let yeah. me just tell a quick story. So uh, I, it's traditional in Judaism when you, after a funeral, you will be given a ripped piece of fabric to clip to your clothing so that everywhere you go, people will know. And so uh, in because it used to be that the family members would rip off a piece of the person's clothing and put it on, but now which were this ribbon. And as I was flying home from my uncle's funeral, it was amazing to see the airplane staff <laughs> register what was happening. And they just gave me my space. I've never had so much quiet around me. Um, but to think how few people are trained on that, where everybody else is like, you ripped your shirt. What happened here? 
<laughs> I can see that. Did people say that? Yes. Yeah. Even when I explained it, one person was still like, no, 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 there's something ripped. And I'm like, hi, this is a signal that I'm grieving. Yeah. And then I get space. And in my culture and in the culture of airplane staff, they appear to know what this means. Yeah. I wonder if airplane staff are particularly multiculturally aware because of the nature of their job. I yeah. wonder. I mean, it makes sense, right? So, so yeah. Um, I, I, I want to read another excerpt from, from the book. I think it'll be the last little bit I'll read here. A client once told me that his partner had two miscarriages over the span of a few years. They were both unplanned pregnancies with his long-term partner at the time. The couple later ended their relationship without having any children. Upon looking back on these miscarriages, which, which had happened decades prior, he reported a mixture of feelings that continued to, to plague him to some extent. On one hand, he felt fortunate that he did not have unplanned children with his former partner. So on, on one hand, he felt happy that, the, that these children were not born because he was no longer with this person. On the other hand, he naturally had several signs of what we call complicated or prolonged grief. So a good portion of my book is going to be discussing what they call in the research literature complicated or prolonged grief. For instance, he had intrusive thoughts about his potential children throughout his life. He would wonder, oh, at this point they'd be mm-hmm. 20 and they would be going to college. And, I, you know, he, and they were intrusive thoughts. They weren't, they weren't like just daydreams, which would happen sometimes, but they were actually intrusive in that they were painful and unwanted thoughts occurring to him. He would occasionally fantasize about his life, what his life would be like if, he had, if they had survived and how old they would be. He imagined their faces, what they would look like. He imagined taking them to the park and this sort of thing. When triggered, he had episodes of debilitating sorrow and regret, even though he was usually happy and content with his life. So he's normally content and happy, and then these memories or the, the notion of his unborn children would emerge in him, and he'd become triggered, and he would have sorrow that was debilitating. And all of these grief experiences were not supported by those around him. No one cared mm-hmm. about this experience for him. Uh, there was no memorial. There was mm-hmm. no gravesite. There were no condolences from family or friends. He and his former partner never discussed it. And due to shame, he did not feel comfortable confiding in other people aside from me eventually. It was an unacknowledged loss or a disenfranchised grief. And I think we both know as therapists, when somebody comes to you and says, I've never talked about this with anyone, that that act of holding those secrets is as damaging as the original act itself. Right. Yes. When people are, for instance, sexually assaulted, they are, they will sometimes say the reaction from society and from people after the rape was more traumatizing than the actual rape. Mm -hmm. The police officer who who grilled me and intimated that I was lying or that I was, that I was asking for it. The way that my family reacted by saying, by questioning why I was there and why was I drinking and shouldn't I know better. The reaction from friends that they stop asking me to hang out with them. The reaction of other people that never really checked in and asked how I was doing with it. 
the reaction of society telling me that I'm a slut and that there's some, you know, that's the trauma that happens uh, to people that's, that's even worse. And it's the same thing with these sorts of losses. The loss is, is horrible and, and, and very sorrowful for people. But then you add on the experience of being marginalized and denied and, and shoved away and rejected during a time when you need other people the most can be perhaps even more damaging. Well, and at this point in our culture too, in some sections, there's tremendous pressure to have children. Mm. So, you know, to get married, to buy a house and then to have children to be a normal American. Right. It's, it's, it's a sign of status. Um, I mean, I know this as a parent of a single child. Sometimes you get that look like, why didn't you have another? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but the, the, to have children in our culture right now, I think, portrays normalcy. Um, and so when you lose a child in utero or early on, you know, there is that tremendous sense that I have failed. Right. We, are, we judge parents from conception till death do us part. And along those lines, there's a message that if you miscarried, were you drinking alcohol? Mm-hmm. Were you not eating right? Did you have tuna fish? Did you exert yourself? Were you not doing yoga? Were you doing too much yoga? There's this innate judgment on parents and particularly mothers that it's their fault. So it's like the CDC came out with this Oh yeah, statement this week that women from 18 to 40 should not be drinking if unless they're on birth control. <laughs> like it's somehow that all fetal alcohol syndrome cases are because women are shamefully drinking and suddenly pregnant. And I thought, oh my, like... Well, this is- the thing that I read from that was that they were blaming women for being raped. They were saying... Or they were blaming women from from getting pregnant on accident or something, right? Because they were saying it's crazy. You right. you can avoid unwanted pregnancy. I don't know. I just <laughs> the, I, I'm guessing that whoever authored that didn't mean that implication when I when I actually looked at the infographic. But but yeah, they need to find as a presenter of information. I will often say, okay, well, what's the, what's the bad thing that could come from what I just said? And I'll right. try to account for that by saying something. Usually it just requires, a, you know, it could have just been an asterisk and then a little caveat that gets, we're not saying that blah, 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 because research might find that alcohol does lead to blah, blah, blah. But anyway, point is, is we as a society default blame women for way too much things. <laughs> And we have a really false notion in our mind about how much mothers uh, have control over the outcome of certain things. And even if they, even if they were to blame, did they mean to do it? So, and if you're a mother yourself or a father for that matter, you know you've made tons of mistakes. Your kid could have died in any number of ways because of the mistakes. You, how many times did you drop your kid? How many times did you trip with your kid? How many? How many times did you? Did you not signal before changing lanes and almost run someone over? I mean, 
there's countless ways in which you were lucky as a parent that your child did not die. So how about having a little bit of sympathy for parents where things just went wrong for them? Yeah. Well, um, I just want to mention this, changing the subject just a little bit, that if you've ever been in a cemetery that is old, do you know how you symbolized on a tombstone a young, that it, there was a, a death of a very young being in that grave? What did they? They would put a lamb on top of the tombstone. Mm. So whenever you're in a really old cemetery, look for those those lambs, and that indicates a stillbirth or a child who died very young. Because, you know, just a hundred years ago, children died all the time. Right. Life and, is very fragile. People. Yeah, and they and they still die. Uh, a friend of mine had a baby die just a few days before birth, mm. and. I remember going to the funeral and it was this tiny little casket mm. and it was just the saddest thing. And yeah, it was, it was awful along those lines. I, I just want to tell people that because our society is so backward, we like to think of Americans as well. Like, oh, we're so like advanced. No, we're not. We're idiots. <laughs> Other cultures around the world are way more advanced than us when it comes to grief and loss. They have a much deeper, fully experiential understanding of death and loss and the cycle of life and what it means to grieve. I mean, there are men in the Middle East that hold hands as adults, just as friends. I mean, we like to hack on them like they're a bunch of sexist assholes. I mean, wake up, Americans. We're backward, and we're backward with this too. Mochi's being... (laughs) comforting to me in this moment. Mochi, the dog, Rebecca's dog. Um, so when people lose their unborn child or just recently born child or child at all, but particularly we're talking about perinatal deaths and they want to take a picture or they want to take the dead fetus home with them or they want to bury the fetus in their yard or they want to have a cremation or they want to have a ceremony or they want to have you think about them or they want to talk about it or they want to hold the baby even a day after it it has passed away. They want to hold that baby. They can't let go of that baby yet. Stop with the ridiculousness, Americans, with the judgment and the looking at them and thinking that it's grotesque. It's not grotesque. It's the cycle of life. It's normal. People love their children. Which society would you rather live in? A society where parents have children die and they just like move on in life and go, well, you know, there's plenty of children to be born. Or a society where parents have a child that dies and they hold on to that child. And to acknowledge how much of it literally is hormonal and not rational. There are literally chemicals kicking in to the parent's body for them to hold, to care, to nurture. Chances are that woman's milk is going to come in. I mean, there are physiological things going on that make that process so hard. 
on the body and on the mind. So not only should we stop judging and pointing with the with disgust. So let's l- eliminate the bullshit people. But also let's start supporting them. Let's make a ceremony. Let's let's create a movement where we raise awareness and where we support people like that. You check in with them. What would you like to do? How would you like to grieve? How would you like a picture with you and the child? How do you want, where do you want to, do you want to bury the child? Do you want a gravestone? Do you want a cremation? Do you want to hold on to the child for a while? Give people those options. And actually, the friend of mine that lost the fetus recently, lost the baby recently, the hospital, I don't know if it's just Seattle or maybe it's just general nursing practices in the United States, they actually reacted quite well. They, mm-hmm. they let her, they gave her tons of, of room and space mm-hmm. and let her hold the fetus and just asked her a lot of questions from her account. She, she, they, they said, would you like to take the fetus home? Would, I mean, I don't know the label. That, would you like to take the baby home? Uh, and they let her do that. I'm just guessing that 20 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, they just would have disposed of it right away right, and said, right. you don't know what you're talking about. It's best that you don't see it or something right. like that. Yeah. So there are good things happening. Mm-hmm. And I think that nurses in hospitals understand this much. They, they're much more advanced in this way because they experience death so often that they know generally how to deal with this much better than the rest of society, perhaps even us therapists, because we don't experience. Yeah, we don't. It's, it's very third person. Yeah. Well, any final words about this, Rebecca? <sighs> if this has happened to you or someone you love, just really be gentle with yourself and give yourself time and know that a year later, two years later, five, ten years later, it may come up. It may haunt you, and that's... That's normal. That is grief. That's normal. It's forever. Mm-hmm. Grief never ends. That's my main. That's my main push with people. Is like they'll often try to define. Well, you know, normal is one or two years. No, 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 no. Grief never ends. I mean, unless you have one of those TV uh, hit bonks on the head and you have amnesia and you forget about it, that memory will stay with you for the rest of your life and the grief associated with it. So particularly when it comes to a loss like this, of course it will last forever and it will emerge and it will morph over time and let's all support each other, allow ourselves to experience that sadness and know that there's no silver, there might be a silver lining, but there might not be. When you lose a child, what possible positive thing could come out of it that would counterbalance the loss? There isn't. It's a loss. It's terrible. It's, it's awful. It's, it's, a, it's a tragedy. And let's just accept that and be with it and be together with it. Because when we're together and we feel supported, it makes it so much easier. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself. And we love you very much, patrons, for becoming patrons of the podcast. Spread the word. Tell other people to become patrons so they can listen to these episodes and, be, and become depressed as just as much as you are right I now. I didn't cry. But if you're crying, that's fine. You teared up a little bit. I did. So did you. I did. Thanks for joining us out there. That does it for this episode. 
take care of yourself because you deserve it. <laughs>